Okay, welcome everyone and good evening. I'd like to welcome you back for the fourth session now of A Sabbath of the Land for You, Shemitah, Ethics, and Jewish Philosophy with Ms. Sarah Zager and Ms. Renana Dine. Dine. Um, as usual, I would like to encourage everyone joining us here on Zoom to please, if you're comfortable, join us on camera, uh, but do keep yourself muted if you are not meaning to share your audio at a particular juncture, just because sounds happen, noise happens, life happens in the background. If you prefer to use the chat, you are of course welcome to do that here. If you're joining us on Facebook Live, you can put questions and comments in the comment section below the video, and I'll bring them over here to share with the group and be discussed. And if you're joining us on Drisha Live, hello, we're glad you're here. I'll be sharing a link to the source sheet for folks who would like to follow along independently, but otherwise the sources will be shared on screen. And let's get to it. Ms. Zager, Stein, take it away. Okay. Um, well, welcome to our fourth class. Um, today we're gonna focus on um, the topics of like labor and economic justice and the kind of vision of poverty and the end of poverty that um, that Shemitah presents for us and how some modern and contemporary thinkers have um, envisioned the kind of economic ethic that Judaism, particularly maybe Shemitah, but also broadly um, sketches out. Um, is there anything else you want to say, Sarah, in terms of introduction before we jump back into Devarim? I think I think a, a reminder from Devarim is a great place to start. So let's let's just jump right in. So we don't need to we don't need to go into great detail because we discussed uh, the contrasts and and similarities between Shemitahs presented in um, in Leviticus and as in, in Deuteronomy in our first session, but we want to bring the text back of uh, from Devarim, from Deuteronomy of what Shemitah looks like or what the kind of Shemitah is envisioned in, in as in terms of poverty and slavery um, in, in Devarim. Um, I think if we can have someone read either in Hebrew or English quickly, and then we can kind of just sketch out what the vision is here before we delve into our modern thinkers. I'll volunteer to go. Okay. If, however, there is an needy person among you, one of your kinsmen, any of your settlements in the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not harden your heart and shut your hand against your needy kinsmen. Rather, you must open your hand and lend him sufficient for whatever he needs. Beware lest you harbor the base thought. The seventh year, the year of mission is approaching. So you are mean to your needy kinsmen and give him nothing. He will cry out to the Lord against you and he will incur guilt. Give to him readily and have no regrets when you do so. For in return, the Lord your God will bless in you in all your efforts and all your undertakings. For there will never cease to be needy ones in your land, which is why I command you, open your hand to the poor and needy kinsmen in your land. If a fellow Hebrew man or woman assaults you, he shall serve you six years, and the seventh year shall set him free. When you set him free, do not let him go empty-handed. Uh, furnish him out of the flock, threshing floor and vat which the Lord your God has blessed you. Great, thank you. So again, I think we looked at this source um, in our first class. Um, 
but quickly before we delve into some some more thinkers what what is the kind of ideal vision of economic life um being being described here um what does devaram want kamita to to look like in terms of issues of economics and poverty Well, the reference to Shemitah, um, this whole passage is, is not necessarily about Shemitah. It's just a reference to it in the middle. So we 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 excerpted it from the longer piece of Devar. Oh, it was. It was. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Okay, so it's all part of that general discussion of Shemitah. Yes. But it's not something to do just in the Shemitah year. The, 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 this reference of providing is an ongoing thing. It's just telling you in the middle that uh, because the Shemitah year is approaching doesn't mean you should um, not want to give because of the Shemitah year. So isn't the general uh, commandment uh, for for all time? It's nothing to do. It's not just it's not just Shemitah, and that's the way I'm reading it. You yeah, I think. Uh, go ahead, Renana. I, I, I was going to let okay, you know. I, I think that I think that there is a way in which that's certainly true. I think if you read it, yeah, and we maybe we did a, a disservice by excerpting it in exactly this way, um, right? Just before this, um, it says, right, like there will not be any needy at all. And now I'm going to tell you, and, and that's a description of what Shemitah is going to be. And then there's a description of, okay, but even within, within that, like, what are you supposed to do when you encounter a poor person? But yeah, I think it's definitely true that like the kind of general advice of opening your hand to the needy is a kind of broadly applicable advice. And at the same time, part of what's going on in this picture is a, or in this text is, is sort of, Shemitah is supposed to help you understand what that looks like, what that is. Uh, yeah, I and mean, I think an interesting potential conflict or tension is, it seems that like almost if you keep Shemitah, there will never be a poor person. And then if there is, here's how you deal with it. But Shemitah is also something that happens once every seven years. So are we only talking about how you treat poverty in this one year? Or is this sort of like, if we have this system in place, there will always and forever not be poverty? I see that Judy has her hand up. No, I had a, a point that I think these are the verses that are also used as a basis for um, tzedakah and the halacha surrounding tzedakah so that it, you know, it is being used in several ways, although here it seems to be focusing on Shemitah, the rabbis did use this to expand on the concept, I think, of, you know, Kol Yisrael or that, that always there will be the poor and you're responsible for them. And I think it's in more than one way, in particular, when Shemitah is coming up, ah, don't, you know, be, be warned, and then is not a time for you to close your heart. But I think the opening of your hand um, is, is a more general kind of commandment. Yeah, I mean, it's, and, and certainly the rabbis read it that way anyway. 
I say this is a good opening for us because we're going to be discussing thinkers broadly on issues of of poverty and economic rights, um, not only about Shemitah. So this is a, this is a good this is good for us in terms of where we're going to be going. Um, I'm also wondering, like, what does this vision of Shemitah seem to require of us? Because I think that's going to be a major question throughout this shares or this class is what what are we what do we owe what are we required to be doing um in order to kind of manage this um economic expectation or the people who we encounter who are impoverished i think the i think the biggest thing that this is pushing devarim overall right and Shael talks a lot about this right is is trying to figure out how do you create a just society how do you reduce poverty and all that but i think what's happening part of what's happening here is and what's required of us is trust, right? Because what they're saying is, we know that if you lend money in the sixth year, you're going to lose it because we're going to cancel your debt. But you have to trust that somehow God's blessings will overwhelm you with, um, in a way that you won't lose out by helping a poor person. Right, and that's obviously also going to be and that's going to be critical in everything else. Like, why should I give money to somebody else? Well, not only is it a good thing to do for whatever reason, you have to help that other person. But what God keeps promising us is, you know, if you create the society where you're helping the downtrodden, you yourself will benefit. You, you as the prosperous farmer or the or the rich merchant or whatever. And um, that's a hard sell. And uh, Deuteronomy is pushing it pretty hard. And this is one of the more dramatic examples. Uh, and as I'm sure you'll get into, you know, we 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 backed away from it, and that's why Hillel had to do prose bowl and all those things. This is a hard thing. It's a hard sell. Yes, Judy. Also, I think I think that we've totally moved away from the concept of the Shabbat Shabbat for the land. We are now really looking at an economic situation and society, and not so much the land at all. Yeah, so we don't necessarily owe the land anything in this vision. We only owe the poor person, the laborer, the slave. Okay. All right. Any other any any other insights before we we jump a couple a couple of millennium? Um, well, yeah. Does the, the, the office? It goes comes to the elephant in the room. It's something that we it's hard to deal with. For never cease to be needy ones in your land, which I command you. It's it's not like there doesn't seem to be this vision that one can eradicate need and poverty, that it will always be there. And at least the the, the text seems to be clear on that. Right, and that kind of sets us up as an endless requirement expectation that you. Will you know, we're always going to be responsible for um, for how we care for impoverished people and that, you know, there isn't some ideal vision of a utopia where, you know, there's a class of society and everybody, you know, has exactly what they need. No, rather our requirement is to lift up the people who are in need. Right, and uh, because you you read people, you know, even here in Manitoba, it's, uh you know, make poverty history, eradicate poverty. And yeah, obviously we want no one to be poor and nobody to be hungry and no one to be needy. But the text seems to be saying, hey, well, it always will be. Um, 
So it's um, a bit of a sobering thought. I mean, I think as Sarah mentioned, the line actually that we cut out before this is, there won't be needy. And then this comes in and I was like, oh, well, actually there will be. Um, so it's a little, there's a, there's a tension between the utopia ideal that we want to envision that maybe Shmita helps us for or something and reality. Yes. I want to just throw in one more, one other, one other point here, which is it, it might, it's unclear from this picture kind of where the scarcity is coming from, right? So there are going to be needy. And there are also going to be people who have God's blessing. And there's some sense that like one's economic position um, is tied to God's favor, right? Um, in part, maybe because this is an agricultural society where like, you know, just sort of meteorological phenomena make a really big difference in people's economic standing. But I think in our world, um, it might be a little bit the sources of scarcity might be different. And so, yeah, I think like some of these sort of, you know, contemporary calls to eradicate poverty um, are at least sort of, as I read them, uh, a call not to eradicate, like, not a, a call to eradicate some of the social forces that lead to poverty. Um, but it might be that other kinds of scarcity um, you know, especially in the, the coming climate disaster, um, you know, God forbid, uh, maybe really just like very much part of, uh, part of our lives. So I don't know, I think there's differences between sort of scarcity of resources and some of these like structural forces that might, that might play a role, but all that said, it's, it's useful to kind of remember not to, not to impose too much of like an, like a contemporary, you know, capitalist, market reality onto uh industrial capitalist market reality rather in onto a text that doesn't doesn't quite live in that world i, I think i, 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 I know. Meet your computer meet your computer okay okay sorry about that um i've always kind of i've always <laughs> um I've always appreciated the sort of like the, the realism of that there's never not going to be poor because it's not it's not saying like like sometimes it's sort of like we're striving for something like I feel like poverty is one of those things where it's like it can look like it's gone um, and if we forget that it's not gone even when we can't see it we leave people behind and so like saying there's never not, you you work really hard because there's never not going to be poor is sort of like sobering. Um, yes, but it's also sort of like, not hopeful, but sort of like encouraging. It's like, this is the thing you have to keep like, you know, or keep working on this because it never, never really goes away. There's always going to be forms of need and things that people are going to, you know, need in different ways, always be open-handed, always have this attitude to everyone around you because like, like and even if it is gone, like kind of like you were saying, Sarah, there are ways in which people can slip back into it. Like it could come back. So it's not sort of like an absolute thing that like goes away and doesn't come back and whatever, you know? Yeah, it's certainly going to get you out of the like the mentality of thinking, oh yes, I've solved the problem now. I'm done, right? Like this text is never going to let you let you there. I uh, I, I noticed that the, we have a comment from someone on Facebook Live who asked the following question. Um, the difficulty of of observing Shemitah contradicts God's entreaty at the end of Deuteronomy that the Torah is not too hard to follow. Christians also seem to claim that, that Halakha is too hard to follow. Is this not a problem? Um, 
I mean, maybe it is a problem, but I think perhaps the kind of like within the space of a breath or, you know, five sukim kind of contradiction between there are always, there are never, you're, there won't be any poor people. Oh no, there will be poor people is I think one way of, um, of, of sort of seeing that the text really recognizes that this is a, a, a problem um, and, and recognizes that this isn't, this isn't gonna be an easy problem to fix. And that's okay, even if the Torah is supposed to be something we can figure out how to live out. Um, it might be that even living out what the Torah wants us to live out doesn't actually exhaust the realm of like solving all social problems. Yeah, I was also gonna say we actually encountered um, this line last week from Rob Cook of God, God cannot demand things that are impossible. Um, and that was part of the reasoning behind allowing for the Hetemachira, for allowing the sale of, of land to, to Gentiles to farm the land during Shemitah in modern Israel. Um, so we do have we do have that tension and we have reasons and ways to th think through when that kind of problem arises and with on a quote unquote halachic solutions. Um, but but I think what Sarah was saying about like this this tension and how it exists and, and what that means um, also applies. We also had another uh, comment from from Facebook. It seems like about um, whether the standard of poverty could also be changing or what does it, what does the poor look like at any one time? And I think that is another thing of like at in certain quote unquote prosperous times, it's possible that what poverty looks like has uh, has changed um and the standard of living has changed um but there there will always be some who are better off and some who are who are worse off um i also know we have two hands up um but also we want to move on to our other sources so maybe we take these two comments quickly and then uh and then we'll move on well i see three hands up harvey why don't you go first <laughs> um yeah, I, I would just kind of just hide the the, the 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 it ends up by telling this you should share from what you have because you've been blessed. So we're going to tell some of us will have plenty, and it's telling us off the bat. He said, "Don't harden your heart." So we're it's telling us to be caring, be compassionate, to share because people have. I mean, maybe I'm saying the obvious, but it's telling us we just because we're blessed doesn't mean we not we can close our eyes to everything. That, society be around us and uh, and not act appropriately. I had a thought that just hit me um, that in some way the poor person has some kind of power over the supposedly blessed rich person because there's a stress and this is a theme throughout I think Chumash is he will cry out to the Lord against you and you will incur guilt and uh, do it because you won't have regrets because God will bless you because of this. So the poor person has some kind of role to play and has some kind of relationship to God vis-a-vis -vis the rich person. I mean, he is as much part of the rich person's blessing as a fruitful piece of land. 
Right, and just to sort of pick up on Judy's point and then and try to answer the question earlier of how can you have these contradictory verses and is this all too hard? I think the point that Devarim is trying to make here and God trying to make it again, it's one of trust, is if we really followed all of the rules of Deuteronomy, there would be no poor people because God would bless us because this whole, you could say just from an economic perspective, this, a lot of this would work and would help alleviate poverty. But if you're God, you know that we're never really going to follow all of it. And so there's always going to be poor people and you still got to do your best by them. Uh, so I think that's where some of this, some of this is coming from. You guys are all having amazing thoughts and insights. Um, and we've already had gotten a good discussion on a text that we showed you a couple of weeks ago. But we're going to move ahead um, to our modern text and try and make sure we have time to cover um, everything we want to talk about. And, and basically what we're going to move into is there are a couple different maybe models for thinking through the requirements of poverty and economic justice um, that offer different ways through the tensions that we've just been discussing. Um, so Sarah, I'm gonna let you take the lead on the next one. Absolutely, okay. Um, so the first model we're gonna think about is really a, a kind of halachic one, and it may be coming to us from a, a source that you wouldn't think of as a, a halachic source or a source that you wouldn't think of as talking a lot about halacha, and that's um, Igor Musar, which is sort of the opening salvo of, of Rabbi Israel Salanter, who's the founder of the, the Musar movement. Um, and he is interested, I think, in trying to give a story about what these law, what economic laws of halacha are supposed to do for us. Um, I think you'll you'll notice maybe some resonance with resonances with some of the the stories we we saw last week, especially from Rav Cook, uh, or the last two weeks. Um, but he notices out in his community that there are lots of people who are very fastidious about all kinds of kind of bread and butter type halachic matters, um, literally bread and butter, um, but also kind of you know part of part of the core of things. Um, but that they're not as fastidious about economic matters. And he thinks this is a serious problem, um, but he also thinks it's a good example of how his method of kind of reforming your character is supposed to go. So he actually thinks, even though it's very bad that we're in this situation where people don't care very much about these economic issues, nonetheless, it's, um, it, it provides an opportunity for thinking about how we might kind of become better people. So I would love for someone to read, um, unless you're feeling like deeply, deeply wedded to Salanter's somewhat strange Hebrew, I recommend the English, but I'm, I'm open to topic. Um, and if you could read like one chunk at a time and then pause, that would be awesome. Richard, is that your hand? I can't, yeah, okay, go ahead. For an illustration in our district, praise to the almighty, the injunction to abstain from non-kosher meat is naturally implanted within the souls of Israel. <clears throat> so strong is the proclivity that no one has to force his nature and desire to abstain from non-kosher meat. It is foreign to him. There is no kosher butcher who would not consult a competent halachic authority concerning the status of any questionable meat. Even if his inquiry would cause him a significant loss, the fear of Hashem is within him, in his nature and his ways. This generates the attitude, God forbid, that I should do evil and deceive my fellow Jews. 
Okay, so just just to stop here, uh, Ron, can you scroll up just a tiny bit? Okay. Um, one thing I would just want to pull out quickly is that um, Solanter's whole picture is in some way about um, two kind of different tasks that all he thinks all people have to do. The first is kivush um, hayetzer. So you have a yetzer hara and you need to conquer it. You need to get it under control. And then the second step is tikkun hayetzer. You need to like rearrange your yetzer yez so that it's not as bad as it was when it started out. And he says that with respect to kashrut, we've kind of already done tikkun hayetzer because we don't even have these bad desires. We don't need to worry. No one would even, even if there's a lot of money involved, no one would be in the business of, you know, selling uh, a questionable meat or whatever, even if they, they, they're risking a lot of money because they have already kind of organized their whole sense of self and their whole, all of their desires around this. Not so, he says, for other kinds of economic questions. I'll keep going. It's amazing to think about how far we have fallen because while Jews who keep kosher might be willing to sacrifice money and honestly keep kosher. Not always clear that the butchers are so honest about it. Yes, we've yes. all had our scandals there. We've all had uh, our scandals there, right? right. <laughs> However, no, and, and it's interesting that he thinks like there is a there's sort of continuity between kind of Amcha and the butchers, which is not well, maybe in his day there really was, and that's a nice. Yeah, thing. I think maybe in his day there was also. I think like whatever industrial kashrut is like a whole different animal that he can't imagine. So. There you have it. That, yeah. okay. However, in the multitude of our sinful business dealings, we find just the opposite. Most people do not seek advice concerning a suspicion of stealing from their fellow. Oftentimes they oppress victims even before legal claims are fairly evaluated. Some people, even after legal decisions are made, execute deceptive or strong-armed tactics. Doesn't the Torah view all these things equally? All of them are classified as transgressions according to the Torah and its judgments. Thus, whether concerned the Torah injunctions pertaining to non-kosher meat, like you shall not eat flesh of an animal torn in the field, or you shall not eat any carcass, or you shall not oppress your fellow and you shall not steal, all these are equally transgressions of the Torah and must be stringently observed. Sorry, the next chunk is also part of this chunk in the Hebrew, so if you okay. keep going, that would be awesome. It is naturally ingrained in the soul of Israel that all non-kosher meat is forbidden to him. Whatever meat is declared non-kosher by a halachic authority, he will distance himself from it and conduct himself only according to the Torah, except in the case of swordfish. So too, in money matters, whatever the Torah classifies as belonging to one's fellow, if someone else besides the owner has it, this is stealing and he transgresses, you shall not steal. We see in the multitude of our transgressions that even the scholars, as well as nearly the God-fearing people, are not careful to refrain from this sin. And yet, so serious is this transgression that Yom Kippur and even death do not grant atonement. Okay, so he's now said, for Kashrut, we've done both parts of the process. We've sort of quashed our Yetzir Hara, and then we've rearranged it so it no longer desires the bad things. But for other kinds of economic matters, we haven't done that. There's no... <clears throat> We haven't rearranged ourselves such that then it wouldn't occur to me to go and ask a Shaila about whether I am inadvertently stealing from someone, even though that's the same level of problem as, you know, all of the kinds of questions you worry about with your kitchen. For those of you for whom like asking a Shaila is sort of a part of normal life, I would like challenge you to think for yourself. Um, 
how many shayalot you've asked in the last, I don't know, six months, a year um, about kashrut and how many you've asked about your financial life. I will say I have asked many kashrut shaylas and asked zero financial shaylas. That's not a good reflection on me, right? Okay. Um, and is it is a reflection of this problem? Um, thoughts, questions, comments, concerns before we move on to the last little step. All right, finish it off. I was just gonna say also quickly that I think um, it's important, I think that he, he, there's also a tone here of hypocrisy of like, oh, all you people who think you're so firm and so holy, who are, you know, uh, running to, to the rabbi every time you have a question about, you know, a, a spot in your chicken egg, you know, but you aren't doing this, you really aren't so holy, right? He's pointing out a, a, a way that his society is being hypocritical. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So now I think in the last little chunk, he's going to give us a story about what we're supposed to do about this problem. And yeah. he's already told you that it's really urgent. Yet, if a man will direct his heart and soul to learn in depth the laws germane to business matters from the Talmud and the halakhic authorities, each person according to his ability, a character transformation will take place. If the focus of his study to internalize the knowledge of the forbidden and the permitted, then his study will be particularly effective to guard him from stealing, even if at first he is unable to desist from all infringements of stealing, he should not despair. For this is due to the strong desire to steal, as well as the prevalent practices of society. He should know with certainty how great is the power of Musar, that slowly a vast acquisition of knowledge and new habits will take root in his soul. Eventually, questions concerning kashrus and questions concerning stealing will be equally important in his eyes. Okay, so he, here, this is where I think you see like a little bit of a, of a remnant of some of the Rev Cook that we, we discussed uh, in the past couple of weeks. He thinks that if we sit and learn the halachot associated with these economic prohibitions, we will then eventually come to transform our character in such a way that we don't desire to steal anymore. That's a long process. It's a process that over the course of you know, the rest of his writing, he's gonna lay out all kinds of methodological tools that you can have for doing this that like range from you know, reading certain texts to like chanting and all kinds of other practices that he suggests. Um, but he really thinks that if we sit down and learn the text, the halachot themselves as a kind of text will help us rearrange our economic preferences. Right, or at least learn to resist certain kinds of economic temptation. Um, so in a way that, that's sort of similar to what we saw with Rav Cook, who also thinks that you know, we can observe Shemitah just by reading about it and that that will have its effect on our soul. Um, There's a similar kind of story um, about, about what we can do by having the kinds of conversations that we've, we've been having for the past, past several weeks. Um, I'm interested in whether this feels to people like a good, like, does this set of tools feel like plausible to you? Or does it feel sort of a little bit far-fetched? Like, does this seem like it would work? Yeah, Judy. Right. Well, I'm, I'm sorry. I have a question and a comment. What do you mean by set of tools? Oh, sorry. Um, there were multiple people talking. Uh, set of tools. 
as in if you have a problem where you want to you know learn the like where you want where you are finding yourself you know drawn in by your desire to to take things that aren't yours in whatever whatever way like do you think the solution of like, like sitting down with Hoshan Mishpat is going to actually help you in the way that he described? Um, I guess my answer would be, I don't know that it would, I don't know whether it would or not, but it hasn't. Like this is like, I could see a rabbi giving this to our Torah in a synagogue today and it being like applicable to an alarming number of members of their congregation. Um, you know, like every, every time like Jews are arrested for like tax fraud or something, it's like, this is what they need to go read, you know, like, um, so I don't, I guess it's like, it's like an alarming, alarmingly relevant text in that sense. Um, so maybe, I don't know if it would or wouldn't work. Maybe it hasn't worked. Maybe it hasn't been done is my guess. The, the, my, right. maybe it hasn't worked. Maybe it hasn't been done or at least maybe it hasn't been done in the way that Salanter wants, right? There's a way to learn halacha. That's like, I have just learned a very interesting intellectual puzzle and there's a way to learn halacha. That's like, okay, I better rethink who I am as a person. And those two are not totally unrelated, but they're also not the same. Okay, Judy and then Harvey. Yeah, I think it's important that he's using the word Musar and the, the Musar movement, because I think that movement recognized that just plain learning wasn't doing it. That there's some kind of ethical edge to this that goes beyond Halacha, and that's being discussed in one of the other classes, Drisha classes I'm taking, you know, whether there's ethics beyond halacha, are they separate or not? But the, the, the image I have of the Musar movement is that it had to exist precisely because just being from and learning all day long does not make you an honest person. Yeah. Or an ethical person. Yeah. Right. And he's, there's a way to read so just just a little, like two seconds of historical background this is the opening salvo so this is this text is published as a preface to an, a new edition of Moshe Cordovero's Torah of Devorah for those of you into Kabbalah and it's a it's his first statement in some ways it's his least radical so like his kind of more um you know, I, I was once learning this with someone and someone read it and said, well, even a brisker would say that um, for those of you for whom that's like a useful, useful place to pin it. Um, he, he does think that the kind of learning going on around him is insufficient, but part of what he's doing in this is not only saying halakha alone won't work, but he's also saying actually learning practical halakha for someone who's not sitting and learning all day is a valuable enterprise because it changes their character. Learning the practical halacha can help you. Um, not only it's not only a sort of intellectual pursuit. It's not only a pursuit that's designed to kind of you know teach you the the sort of yeshiva curriculum that was developed in Vilna in this period. It's also the balabatim need to sit and learn what to do with their money. Harvey. So I have a problem with the analogy. So on one hand, he says, uh, Rabbi, uh, someone gets a. Uh, I suppose in, in, in his time, someone's got a chicken, chef with chicken, and they weren't they aren't sure whether um, there is um, something wrong with the chicken, or you gave the example of egg and uh, blood, and or you know, it's, did I, I mix this and that, or what am I do I have to do? So maybe you don't. You, what he's saying is, you know, you wouldn't want to transgress crunch cash and you want the guy to make sure I'm not passing that line. 
Yeah, but on the other, but the other analogy with with the stealing, I mean, what are we saying? Is it oh, if I do this and this, am I okay? If I cheat someone in this manner, is it okay to do it that way? Versus if I do it that way, it's obviously cheating. Can I find a way of cheating without really cheating? You know I, I mean? see. Yeah, I see what you're saying. So I mean, cheating is cheating. If you know it's stealing, you know, if Bernie yeah. Madoff knows he's cheating everybody, he doesn't have to go to the rabbi and say, well, is this Ponzi scheme really halachically not acceptable? What, what do you Good. need to go to the rabbi for? Good. I think it's a great question. I think the answer is, is this. Um, he doesn't mean, can I enter a Ponzi scheme? Because can I enter a Ponzi scheme is like going to your rub and saying, can I eat a cheeseburger? Right? That's not the kind of question he has in mind. It's not the kind of fastidiousness he has in mind. He's asking questions like, okay, can I, you know, I don't know, like think of like very small kinds of, of stealing things like, um, you know, you're, you're, you're borrowing, you're like staying in someone's house and you're taking something without asking them, without them giving you permission. Somebody just wrote in Napster. Yeah. Um, you know, you're downloading things illegally from the internet. Uh, you are like things that are actually smaller and, and therefore a little, you think, oh, I, I could get away with that. And in the same way you look at the bowl and you think, oh, there's just this little tiny bit of something in here that's not supposed to be there. Maybe that's okay. Like, I think there are hard financial lines around theft even, um, right? You, I mean, if you think about like some of how American just like securities sort of personal investment works, you might, you might have some worries about that. Um, that are not, yeah, that don't have to be like kind of really crazy. Um, yeah, I also see there's a there's a question from Facebook that, that's sort of connected to this, which is like, what are the chances the crook is going to want to reform himself? Solange really thinks that the crook can reform himself, but that it's a really, really hard road. Um, and that the reading the text and the talking to people about the text and the all of the other kinds of emotional practices that he thinks are supposed to come along with that um, actually can lead you, lead a very bad person to change their, their ways, right? So this is the part of the process of like tikkun hayitzer of re reshaping your your will uh, that he that he wants you to pursue. I, I think wanna, I'm gonna pause there. Oh, well, I just want to say I'll, I'll let Renata. Which, um, yeah. which is the problem with with this is like this might be a beautiful vision for like how an individual can change their character and become a better person. But when it comes to like society, we like need laws that punish people who steal. And we need laws that require people to take care of the poor. Like they don't have the time to uh, to wait for you to like study halacha for years on end and become a better person. Like that's yeah, so I think wonderful, I, but like actually about how the social piece works. Yeah, an infrastructure that he, this does not really provide. Yeah, and part of it is he doesn't want to think of like. He lives in, you know, Vilna in the 18, or just outside of Vilna in, in the 1860s. He doesn't think that halacha is going to be the thing that is going to force people to take care of the poor in a kind of coercive power. If you don't do it, you'll get punished away. On, on, on the structural issues, we had a dramatic case of this, you know, a bunch of years ago, right? With, um, with literally with Kashru, right? Where there were the raids on the illegal aliens who were, you know, underpaid and so forth in the in Rabashkin and whatnot. And I'm sure it's not mm -hmm. only there. 
and the OU and some of the others said, hey, that's the you know government's problem. That's not our problem. We only care whether the knife was sharp enough. And then, of course, there were some groups that said, no, we really want to certify that you know everything's being humanely done. But those have not necessarily taken off and, and become you know the communal standard, uh, however you want to define it. So literally, Solantra's thing is, is, is there. As for the yeah. rest of us, I think, yeah, I think, you know, we, um, a lot of people, I think, work on sort of the buyer beware concept, you know, if I can get away with something, you know, then, you know, we'll make the sale or whatever. And that's not quite where the halacha wants you to go. And so you can study it and see that you shouldn't do some of those things, but it's not as easy as internalizing the kashrut or some, you know, more easily measurable, every circumstance the same um, ritual act. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna sort of close the close the comment period on this amazing text, but I want to encourage people to to shoot their thoughts into the chat, um, and and I'll hand things over to Renana to to give us some loveliness. Yes, thank you, Sarah. So, um, in the interest of time, I'm going to uh, not read the the Mishnah text, but um, and move straight to Levinas um, down here. Um, so Levinas, French Jewish philosopher, second half of the 20th century, um, very famous for developing a philosophy, uh, secular philosophy, for lack of a better word, word, based in ethics and the idea of encountering the face of the other and being obligated to the other in that encounter. Um, and also he wrote these Talmudic dialogues, um, which were him sort of reading the Talmud through his philosophy and, and seeing how the Talmud could kind of explicate some of his philosophical questions. Um, so one of his dialogues was called Judaism and Revolution. Um, and was commenting on um, a section from Baba Metziah and it starts with this famous, famous mission from Baba Metziah about hiring laborers. Um, and whether you have what what the kind of contract you can have with your laborers um and it, in this it has a story i'm just going to again i'm going to read it quickly um it once happened that rabbi yochanan ben Matia said to his son go and hire laborers for us um his son went and struck a deal to provide them with food so he makes a contract with the workers that will give you such and such food when he came to his father his father said to him my son even if you make them a banquet like Solomon's in his time, you will not have fulfilled your obligation to him, for they are the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But rather, before they begin to work, go and say to them, on condition that I am not bound to give you more than bread and beans only. Um, and it ends with saying, actually, you can go by the custom of the place. But the, the, the center, center of the story is that um, Rabbi Yochanan ben Matias thinks that these Jewish laborers um, could ask for anything and everything, and you'd, they'd be owed, owed it because of their lineage. Um, and so you actually have to set a more specific contract than saying, we'll give you food. So Levinas is going to come in here. Again, I'm going to read this quickly so we have a chance to discuss um, and say, you know, what does this mean about um, what is required uh, for us to give to the laborer in his particular understanding? Here are some indications as to the extent of the other man's right. It is practically an infinite right. Even if I had the treasures of King Solomon at my disposal, I still would not be able to fulfill my obligations. Of course, the Mishnah does qualify this. 
uh, in question is the other man who descends from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are human beings who are no longer childlike. Before a self-conscious humanity, no longer in need of being educated, our duties are limitless. Workers belong to this perfected humanity, despite the inferiority of their conditions and the coarseness of their profession. Um, so there's some traditional Levinasian language in here, um, which can be hard to unpack. But um, at least my reading, and I'd be interested to hear what others think, is that Levinas reads the story in the Mishnah and basically says, these workers um, are stand in for any member of humanity. And when you encounter them and, and their needs, you can never meet their needs. Their needs are infinite. Um, if you have all the treasures of King Solomon, you cannot give them everything they deserve or everything you are obligated to give them. And so we're living in a world where we are always going to be kind of obligated to our workers, to the people who we interact with, and we can never quite really meet their needs. So I'm kind of wondering how, how people see this lining up with um, some of what we saw in Devarim, maybe some of what we saw in Salanta, what kind of vision here do we have of like economic justice and labor rights? Um, and I think the question, some of the questions we've been asking about practicality also can, can apply here. All right. I mean, it, that that we should always in our interactions with people think about them in terms of, you know, you're dealing with somebody of infinite worth, but Selim and so forth. At the same time, the rabbis, right, in so many areas were wonderfully practical and you have to figure out what's a realistic thing to do, even if in the ideal, I should do more or I should at least have more regard for them, more respect for them. Right? A lot of that's going on in the world today, not only the issues of workers feeling underpaid, but workers feeling under-respected. And so there, there's, you know, I think there's a, an element here of that, of that as well. And it is interesting and, you know, right, it, which gets back a little bit to the stealing stuff too. You know, what is the local standard for what I'm gonna, should pay workers? And, you know, that would have been Rubashkin's argument or the OU's argument was, you know, hey, there are labor laws, so there's some minimum wage um, and, you can get away with, but there's also the local standard of every, if every butcher is hiring illegal aliens and underpaying them, how do you know, you can't compete by paying, you know, full wage, you know, or whatever. And so, yeah, everybody's got to do this, which is not the halachic answer, not the moral answer, but it's where people end up with, you know, I'm going to be more worried about my cash route than my business dealing because my business dealings will at least match the rest of the market or my perception of it. Yeah, and I, Levinas is a little bit oblique on these matters, but he does have this kind of concept of when you're interacting with one other person, um, you are, again, infinitely responsible, infinitely obligated to them. Um, you have to sacrifice for them, we, whatever. But then there's a third who comes in and, and in certain ways limits that obligation. And only in that other person coming in can you suddenly have a limitation on what you owe the other? And so I think, I don't exactly remember what he does with that line from uh, Rabbi Shimon Ben Gamliel in, in this essay, but right, like 
that's that kind of third coming in. What are, what's the context? What's another person coming in and saying, well, this is how much I get paid, or this is the food I get given. And so actually to have a sort of society where everyone is meeting obligations to some extent is to treat everyone equally to take account for who the other people are coming in who are interacting in the society. Um, just just to jump in with one little note here, the the just to compare this to to Salanter, Salanter thinks that if you go and and look at the sort of particularities of the halacha, that will teach you how to be the kind of person who who doesn't want to steal. But that's actually a far cry from I owe this person everything. Um, because in a way for Levinas, the business of trying to specify what you owe someone is a kind of lost cause. And maybe even a sort of misunderstanding of how you ought to relate to them. Um, but whereas for Salanter, there's a way to specify it. There's a way to kind of lay it all out and, and clarify it. Um, but for Levinas, I think at least in this in this version of Levinas, there's there's not the I owe the other person everything I have and more. That's that's all there is. I say that we have uh, some questions from Facebook and the first one I was going to answer is actually the second one that came in about what would what does it say about someone who becomes poor uh, due to sin because you know they were involved in a Ponzi scheme or my understanding of what Levinas would say is well you were actually responsible somewhat for the fact that they did this sin and became poor so you are still responsible for them because you live in a society that allowed for them to to make those mistakes to be vulnerable to get involved in in such things um, so he he doesn't let you off the hook yeah i mean i think and similarly for the the first the other question that came in which was someone just remarking that this seems to go against uh what Rabbi Akiva Poskins and you know, another sugya about, you know, if you if you have 70 or two people walking in the desert and there's only one can of water, you should save yourself first. Um, yeah, I, I, I think Levinas doesn't think you should save yourself first. Um, and I mean, Renata, if you if you disagree with me about that, I'm 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 totally, totally happy to defer to your expertise. But I think I think he doesn't think that. And he in his darker moments, thinks you actually, you know, you have to sacrifice yourself uh, for the other in some sort of complete way. Um, and he's not the sort of thinker who's going to be bothered by like making sure that everything he says fits with everything that's in the Gemara. Um, that's not the sort of project he's doing. Um, but yeah, he really believes that you. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that I think that this is always this good question of whether what Levinas is saying is actually how we can live and you know if in the in that created situation of there's only water for for one you know it, it might be that you're kind of supposed to fail in the in saving yourself um but yes i definitely in various places he would think that you are sort of obligated to to sacrifice for the other he just never puts it in these kind of specific um like cases uh, he doesn't think like that. He kind of writes in this sort of general philosophical sense. So actually what you would do when like, you know, when the, the actual case emerges, Levinas isn't always so helpful in answering those questions. Um, 
right, I think in the interest of time, we only have technically eight minutes left and we have a whole nother model to go through. I, who knew that this was gonna be the one that generated all this conversation. So I do wanna make sure that we get to um, these uh, sort of questions of actually now, what does this mean for broader society? So I think if we just, uh, um, we're not gonna go, might not go through all the Mishnayot, but I, I wanna just, um, sort of track where we've been so we can see where we're going. So if the first model was a model that was about kind of understanding particular laws for the individual, right? For their, and, and using them to kind of shape the individual. The second model um, seems to be rather than dividing up this big ethical challenge of how I'm supposed to engage in kind of fair economic relationships with other people into a series of little, little tasks or little, uh, little rules that I can figure out how to follow. Um, we explode it to be the biggest thing that can possibly, the biggest thing in the world, right? The biggest thing that is sort of gonna be the orienting principle around which we, we focus our lives is our obligation to the other as an infinite, infinite debt. Um, the third model I think really focuses a little bit on, on prosable, but actually starts to talk about economic justice as a kind of systemic issue. Um, and an issue that requires thinking about how rules function for a whole society. So just to give us like, um, actually we will, I'll read through the Mishnayot. Um, we're gonna, we're gonna see two Mishnayot and then we're gonna see the way that Rabbi Jill Jacobs kind of reads them and connects them in order to give one of a series of definitions of Tikkun Olam that she's she's messing with um, and, 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 and sort of using uh, to, to make her arguments. Um, but I want you to see this particular definition because it um, is, is sort of helpful for thinking about one way that we might think about what Shemitah is and what Shemitah is supposed to do for us. Okay, so this is the first Mishnah. And mostly I'm interested in the last line, but I want you to know about the context that comes before. So a widow is not paid for the property of orphans, except if she takes an oath that she has not already seen, received payment from her ketuba. Um, the courts, however, were reluctant to administer the oath. And so Rabban Gamaliel, the elder, established that she should take any vow that the orphans want um, and then collect her ketuba. And witnesses sign a get because of tikkun olam, and Hillel established prosbol because of tikkun olam. So we, were, we met prosbol earlier on, but... I want you just to see that in this Mishnah, these three things are grouped together. So this business about the woman, um, the widow uh, taking an, or the divorcee taking an oath in order to get her ketubah, one. Two, um, witnesses signing a get because of tikkun olam, and three, prosbol. All three of those are identifying a place where the kind of legal system goes wrong doesn't do what it was supposed to do or gets stuck, you know, quite literally in the case of, of the, the oath for the orphans. Um, and instead um, sort of gets, you know, needs to be fixed. And, and what, what it means to fix the world is really to fix the system, right? Okay, so then this is the kind of classic statement about what why prosbol is uh, prosbol is established, which we may remember from from past weeks, right? Um, this is one of the things that he'll elder established when he saw that people were reluctant to, reluctant to lend to one another, and that they were violating what is written. Beware, lest you harbor the base thought that the seventh year is approaching, the year of remission, so that you 
you are mean to your needy kinsman and give him nothing. He will cry out to the Lord your God against you and you will incur guilt. Therefore, Hillel established the prose. Okay. So again, the reason we have prose is actually because there's a sort of, not only is there a systemic like legal break, but that, that, um, that systemic legal break arises because of a sort of psychological problem. So there's a way in which actually this Mishnah is sort of looping back what we were calling model one and what we're calling model three. Those two things get, get connected. Okay, so here's, here's Rabbi Joel Jacobs, the uh, head of Trua, um, in her sort of survey of different, uh, different approaches to Tikkun Olam. Okay, with the invention of Prozbul, Hillel overturns a biblical law. Given that the Torah specifically forbids potential creditors from refusing to make loans in the year preceding Shemitah, we might expect Hillel to respond to the widespread disregard for this prohibition by castigating his community for his sins, i.e. we might expect him to be um, saying what Rav Salanter says, essentially, right? Instead, Hillel, perhaps recognizing that the entire system of lending and borrowing is at risk, devises a legal loophole that allows for the technical observance of the Shemitah year while also protecting leaders from losing money as a result of this biblical institution. In all of these Mishnahic cases, we might translate as for the sake of the preservation of the system as a whole. Within the Mishnah, the phrase is invoked in response to situations in which a particular legal detail, or I might say also people's kind of motives, threatens to cause the breakdown of an entire system. So here, the, I think the picture we get is less of um, something that we could do, work we could do on ourselves, or of an infinite problem or an infinite debt between two individuals, but instead thinking on the level of a system. And how might we create a system that will actually work for a large number of people and that will take into account some of the kind of human problems we, we encounter on the ground even if those problems arise as uh, sort of as the product of um, as the product of of people's weakness and people's failure to engage in in the very kind of project that that Salanter wanted them to engage in through tikkun or through like rearranging their uh, their internal desires. So I'm interested in whether. If you sort of read, if we, if we take, if we go back to where we started, um, which of these models or ways of thinking about economic justice or questions of economic justice feels like it's kind of most operative? Um, and uh, since we only have one minute, I'll, I'll kind of give away, give away the ending, at least for me, um, which is, I think that there are ways in which we have to use all three of them because they might not be as separable as we thought. Um, in fact, right, and we saw that a little bit with, with Hillel at the end, um, the kinds of internal work we need to do through engaging with the norms that we try to live our society by uh, or try to structure our society, actually those norms do work on us and they do work on the kinds of, you know, uh, two-sided relationships we have, but they also do work on the broader system. And actually we can kind of connect all of those different different things. And maybe that that actually gives us a more robust picture of what, what an economically just world might look like and how we might live in one. I will leave it there, but people can should feel very free to ask questions. I at least can stick around for a minute or two.
Harvey? So maybe this is getting a little technical, but in terms of how the probes ball works, basically the, the, the debts are given over to the to the bait dean. So it's in, it's, so that way people would continue to lend money because if you don't lend the money, the people who need the money are going to have uh, economic difficulties. But then you're not having the intent of beginning the loans, which is what people really need at some point is have that loan forgiven. So are we, we're doing this to keep the economic system going, but we're not really necessarily looking after the needy who at some point, some people just need to have their loans forgiven. Nations get their net debts forgiven. Um, so, but individuals, it's almost like you have to go bankrupt and maybe, you know, maybe that's what bankruptcy though. But even right, then. There, yeah, I, I think, so one thing that's, that's sort of implicit in, in what, what uh, Rory Jill Jacobs is saying here is, yeah, the, the system, like it's only worth doing something in the sense of for the sake of the preservation of the system, if the system is really working. So you might come along and say, wait a minute, the system isn't a system that never remits debts is not working because we learned like sort of very obviously in the Torah that you have to do this. You need people to, to, to have relief from debts. And so, yeah, it's great. You're propping up the lending system, but you're kind of kicking the can down the road because in fact, the real problem is people need remission from debts. People need a way to start over. And you're never going to provide that if you if you you know hand your debts over to the Beijing every seven years. So yeah, there's a way in which I mean I think you know sort of just knowing knowing her a little bit and and sort of her outlook on things, I think she'd say, well, look, like yeah, you can act for the sake of preserving the system, but you better be sure that that system is really gonna it is a just one, right? So you can and that maybe that's a way of making the system more just, but it also might be a way of propping up a really kind of faulty system um, or even like more deeply entrenching its faults. And I think it's also interesting to think about like what happens if you fall too far into debt in like at, at my understanding of the like biblical financial system is you end up as a, as a slave in which time you go free every seven years. So there might still, in certain ways this might actually still have that kind of like remission of the ultimate debt or like some kind of bankruptcy there and so it's it's you know trying to understand what the kind of biblical financial system is and whether it's a just system might require kind of thinking about how all of it kind of works together as a piece yeah yeah i mean i think right i think that's a very good point and like there's there for them slavery is a kind of viable option for what happens when you can't get the remission you need but if we're going to come from a posture of like, that is deeply unacceptable, then we start to say, okay, a system with pros ball is a system with no escape valve for anyone. And that, that's kind of ethically untenable. These are interest-free loans. So they don't have, they, they can still become a burden. You can still end up being enslaved in, in that system because over time you can't repay the, the amounts, but it's not quite as bad as where we, as some of our modern lending for challenges with fees and, uh, and excessive interest yes, rates. Certainly. Certainly, like loans with exorbitant interests are a lot harder to get out of than student loans, for example. Yes. Precisely. They, they, they weren't paying to send, uh, to send their 
their kids to the colleges where people like Sarah and I could meet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thank you all very much. Um, next. Thank you. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just saying thank you. Um, next week we will be talking a lot about freedom and Yovel. Um, and I'm really excited to to finish off our conversation. Okay. I would like to thank both of our teachers, Ms. Zager and Ms. Stein. This was wonderful. And of course, I'd like to thank all of you for your very active and wonderful participation in our learning community here at Drisha. We look forward to seeing you again very, very soon. Uh, if you want to join another class uh, between today and next class, uh, you're more than welcome to look at our other offerings on our website. We do have a class running tomorrow that I think is really, really super. And if you are thinking about maybe being in the New York area towards the end of the calendar year, we are still planning to have our winters mon in person and we are still taking applications and we would really, really love to see anyone who wants to come and bring their questions and other wonderful thoughts. Everyone be well, thank you.